Your Googler knows what that is anyway. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's always fun to be here on a Sunday morning. So good morning to one and all. If you're in the room, there's more of you in the room starting to get a little nervous. Uh, there's just too many bodies in the room. But if you're in the room or if you're out there somewhere in, uh, in the virtual space, welcome. I love this work. You know this. I say this all the time. I think I probably like it more than you actually realize. It was great to hear from Caesar last Sunday, and it was a wonderful week off after Easter. We pulled a lot of... Uh, different levers and things to figure out how to do that. And it was great that Caesar shared last week. Honestly, uh, you've probably have heard me say this too. He's actually one of the better New Testament scholars that I know. He's just a natural with it. And the courage that it takes to do this in another language is extraordinary. I remember it well. Way back in the day, in the late 80s and the early 90s, when I was a stranger in a strange land trying to find ways to communicate in a language that was not my mother tongue too. It's the kind of work that shapes you forever. That's what you need to know. And so, Caesar, thank you for that. Actually, Amor Original, which is his congregation, which at this point is, is virtual only. It will be brick and mortar soon. But Amor Original is officially one year old today. Actually, maybe it's precisely tomorrow, uh, just to be super precise. It was the 19th of last year of April. And it means something that even during a year of pandemic and uncertainty, we, as a local church, have been meaningfully involved in giving birth to something like this. I'm only naming this to say that we have a small, but it's a significant role to play in building an open table, big gospel, fully affirming, flamboyantly inclusive congregation that is as pro-deconstruction and post-evangelical as we are. I love that sentence. That one made the edit, just so you know. And you get to be proud of that because if you're affiliated with this, then in one way, generosity flows back and forth. And so I'm super proud of that. You should be proud of that. That's one year old today. It's a big day for us. Well, now that Easter is behind us, um, the weather is super confused. Anybody wake up this morning and, and look at your thing and be like, 49 what? Wait, 49 Celsius? Or what, what are we talking about here? But now we're looking at some of the post-resurrection stories preserved for us by the friends of Jesus. And today, to my delight, our story features Jesus walking through doors and eating broiled fish, which is pretty neat. Unless you're terrified of ghosts, and of course, unless you just watched Seaspiracy on Netflix, like Jada and I did, my youngest child. In which case, you might be currently a little uneasy about this whole sustainable uh, fishing industry, like Jada and I are. Regardless, those are the details of the story today. Today's passage comes to us from the book of Luke, chapter 24, and it'll appear on your screen as I read. Reading from the New Revised Standard Version, it reads this way, in verse 36 and forward. While they were talking about this, I love those verses that start with that. The this, of course, if you read behind this in earlier verses, is the, uh, it, it's the road to Emmaus conversation and that whole happening, right? Where Jesus explicitly links eating with the revelation of what a glorified body can do. Anyway, it was while they were talking about this that Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 37. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. I love that. He said to them, why are you frightened? Why do you think, Jesus? Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Don't forget, the heart is in the body. That should tell you where we're going today. Notice, it's interesting to me that he didn't say doubts in your minds, where most of mine tend to be. At least that's what I used to think. Not exactly sure what this means entirely, but I feel like this matters for some reason. So just file that away. He goes on in verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. 
Touch me and see me, for a ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, while in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondered. He said to them, have you anything to eat? I'm making a lifetime collection of my favorite sentences in Scripture, and this one is going to make the cut. And we'll visit verse 41 in a few minutes. He goes on, verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence, because that's what you do when a ghost asks for fish. You give him fish. Verse 44, then he said to them, and this is Jesus speaking again, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, and notice that it's only then, after they were eating, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He mentions Moses, he mentions the prophets, and he mentions the Psalms. So think of it as the law, the history, and the poetry. He is that fulfillment. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Suffer and rise, suffer and rise. It's never just one or the other. It's always both, and they go in that rhythm. Suffer and rise. They go together. Verse 47, he goes on, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he tells his friends, and see, I am sending you upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, to situate this for you, this is the last passage in Luke before the ascension of Jesus. I won't belabor this point any more than to say first references matter, and so do last mentions, especially in ancient Jewish literature. Meaning, there's probably a reason Luke tells this story last, right before the ascension. I think that Luke thinks, because this comes last, that we should probably hold on to this, that we should focus on this as a way of summarizing, perhaps even, all the weird happenings and the odd goings-on around the death and resurrection of Jesus. Of course, the other gospel writers end their books with different details, which is interesting. Caesar and I talked about this, something like this, uh, this past Monday morning on a podcast that we might start producing on Monday mornings called Sunday Leftovers. You guys know the idea. Lasagna's great, but it's better tomorrow, that sort of thing. And preachers wake up with things left over bouncing around in their brains. So it's a podcast where two preachers sit with an open mic and an open GoPro, and we muse briefly about whatever is left over in our hearts and minds from the previous Sunday. It was his idea. Most of his ideas are great. Anyway, this is what Luke recalls happening right before the end, which is not necessarily what Mark or Matthew or even John recalled or what they may have considered most important. Caesar and I discussed how the, how the wrong way to approach the Gospels written by very different writers at very different times would be to melt them into a single story. They didn't say the same things. To force them to, I would argue, and Caesar would agree, would be to lose something important. Now, by the way, that podcast conversation was in Spanish, so if you don't speak Spanish, you're out of luck. We'll do some of those in English. Maybe even we'll do one tomorrow in English. Anyway... It's a logical point, and you know this. Not all Stetsons are the same. One says hick, one says hipster. Come on. Can I have one laugh in the house? Listen, if you don't like Stetsons, that's, I stuck my tongue out at you very briefly. <laughs> same point. Not all motorcycles are the same. One says pretender and one says sophisticated collector, right? Right, Don Brimberry in the house here? And the same is true for the Gospels. They don't preserve a single narrative thread. They don't have the same 
memory of how things happened. Reducing them in such a way as to make them speak univocally takes something away. It doesn't add credibility. So for whatever reason, Luke remembers Jesus walking through locked doors to eat broiled fish with his frightened friends as his final act before riding a cloud to some unseen place. Luke remembers him wanting more than anything else to break bread with the people that he loved. You know, I'm not always sure how we ended up misplacing the table as the central location of faith and discipleship. Why did we build churches and basilicas instead of long tables and high-capacity kitchens? How did we become an institution that primarily produces inedible things like teaching and worship services, and why did we not become a global chain of farm-to-table outfits? Ever think about that? You probably didn't. I know I did. These post-resurrection stories are oddly embodied narratives. I'm trying to acclimate you to what we, are, what we have in front of us today. You see, spirituality, as it turns out, is infinitely and mysteriously embodied. It's enfleshed and almost always within arm's reach of someone's table. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This might actually be the secret to understanding these post-resurrection, pre-ascension narratives. These are body stories. I believe that when Jesus involved himself in whatever he did in this liminal time, it matters. Maybe even more than other details, if I'm honest. What he said, what he ate, who he appeared to, what he did, even what he didn't do after the horrors of Holy Week, it all mattered. Why? Embrace yourselves. Because this glorified body that Jesus ambled around in, this is our future. And this is our chance to take a glimpse at ourselves in the future. Nothing should make more sense to us than this, but it didn't to them, and it still doesn't today. Why is that? I mean, honestly, how complicated can this be? Don't forget, he is our future. Wait, did I say that already? Maybe I'm starting to layer that so you catch that. What are you saying, preacher? I don't understand. Oh, just that Easter is meaningless if Jesus isn't our future. Jesus is just another well-beloved, non-violent historical figure with some super saucy, wonderfully memorable zingers if he isn't a glimpse of who we can be. He's just another influential philosopher, another peaceful protester, another problem for power and empire unless, unless we're actually somehow able to follow him through the door of death and surrender to new life. To a new body. If this is our future, which I think that it is, then it should be deeply important to us to fully accept, to fully embrace, to fully grasp the limitations and the parameters of what Jesus could do in his version 2.0 glorified body. This should feel disruptive, which I'm sure that it did, does because it is. You see, folks, we have a body on both sides of the grave now. Which has me thinking, nobody talked about this stuff growing up. We skipped these stories mostly. How did we retreat so quickly to our minds where all the sermons and the teachings of Jesus were the things that obsessed us? That's what we spent most of our time trying to understand while we drifted past these ghost stories of glorified bodies and broiled fish. Is it shame that drives us to our minds? Does our bodily shame drive us there? Do we carry too much shame in our broken and breaking bodies to believe that anything divine could occur here? 
Do we track our faith straight to our heads as quickly as able? Because at least there we can tell ourselves incriminating tales about original sin and God's holy disgust with our humanity and in so doing create an airtight case for the impossibility of our worthiness. Our divine origin, our divine trajectory, is our bodily shame the reason we've retreated to our theology and wasted millennia arguing about how the mind is converted when all along we were designed to experience salvation in our bodies right now? Now, you're going to have to go back and listen to that sentence again. It doesn't get any more packed than that. Was it our bodily shame that makes us resist and go back to the mind? Or maybe it's the myth of control that drives us from our bodies into our brains and in our minds. I mean, we have so much more control over our thoughts than we do over our bodily urges, don't we? Actually, I don't know if that's true anymore. Maybe you do. But for several thousand years, here's what I know. We've been, we have taught ourselves that we did, that our bodies are evil, and that the unseen spirit within us is all that God actually wants to set free. This goes all the way back to the original circle of Jesus, y'all. I'm not making this up. It goes back to the first writers. From the very beginning, when they wrote this stuff down, it seems that the conversion of the mind, of thought, of belief was the goal, but we probably shouldn't dismiss these ghost stories, these post-resurrection tales of glorified bodies and apparitions. They're frightening because we can't control what happens next, can we? Y'all, his body, his actual body, showed up on both sides. And he didn't ask his friends to think about it. He asked them to touch him. Don't forget that detail. Now, we talk about the embodied reality of the good news all the time around here at ANC. It's a big part of our spiritual diet, but it's still alarming, isn't it, if you're honest? If it still feels new or controversial or even scandalous to you, promise me that you won't feel ashamed. We aren't alone in our slow uptake of this truth. Almost all of Jesus' followers thought, at least initially, that he was a ghost. Nobody, literally not one single disciple of Jesus in our text, according to Caesar, believed without seeing. Nobody accepted the outcome of Holy Week without having a physical encounter of some sort with the resurrected body of Jesus, the glorified body of Mary's boy, which might be why Caesar said last week that by the time John writes his account, decades after the fact, he adds to Jesus' monologue this idea that blessed are they that believe without seeing which I suppose is us in one way. We haven't actually seen Jesus, have we? So we think about Jesus, that's what we do. That feels much safer anyway, but I guess I'm suggesting that we've missed an essential piece of his message. Don't forget, these post-resurrection stories happen mostly around tables. That's important. We misremember where he promised to meet us in one another and in the food we enjoy together when we're gathered. Broiled fish, y'all. Okay, on the count of three, smell that. One, two, three. Can you smell it? Funny how the mind works, isn't it? You see, our bodies know exactly what to do with that. You know what I think? I actually have seen him. I have seen you, and I have seen me. And the same is true for you. You have seen him too. This is what he came to teach us to see that bodies belong on both sides, that God is in us every single one. 
But it's still shocking to see the future, your future, walk through, literally through the front door. We were afraid, so we locked that door. We tried to protect ourselves from our own terrifying awareness of our divine destiny, so we hid to bring comfort, but that never works. Fear doesn't actually protect, it isolates, which is not the same thing, is it? Verse 41 of our passage today is my favorite. It feels so real, and it says this. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything to eat? Joy and disbelief and wonder, all embodied realities all belong together, right at the table where friendship and broiled fish deliver comfort to both parties, to Jesus and to his friends, both parties straddling this great and confusing divide. Of course, there was wonder, even disbelief. All feelings are welcome here. Take your time, sweet friends of Jesus. Feel them all. You are allowed. I always get a Sarah Blondin quote in here somewhere. You know, when I read this stuff, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus was in a big hurry to get out of this place after he rolled away the stone. I mean, he took his time, 40 full days according to tradition. And as this passage makes crystal clear, it's a good thing. Because the disciples didn't immediately understand what to make of it all, much less what to do next. Which, if I'm honest, is my favorite characteristic of divine revelation. It unfolds at the precise speed of our ability to get it. Heaven has never been in much of a hurry. Tell me again, why are we? So they were in hiding. So what? No shame in that. Some of us have spent our entire lives there. (laughs) A couple of thoughts in closing. First of all, Jesus isn't constrained by the fence lines that fear constructs. He gently moves past the barriers and the borders we construct to keep ourselves hidden again and again. You see, forgiveness always travels more than halfway, doesn't it? A bolted door only stops us from getting out. It never really stopped love from getting in. And what was so important that he moved past our fear to teach us, to show us, oh, just about the divine nature, the full capacities of the human body? Think about it. What were his friends afraid of? His body. What it meant that he turned up again after dying a gruesome public death. I don't think they were afraid of his teachings, his commandments, or his ideas. They were afraid that he came back Here to this, it was the body that threw them because if it happened to him, they might be next. You see, Jesus was crystal clear about that much. So if you're like me, I'm guessing you grew up in a church that mostly taught you to be ashamed of your body. (laughs) You see, organized faith often opts for an easier route. It Promises things will be better someday, in some way, in some other place beyond this. It focuses almost exclusively on disembodied headspace where doctrines and dogmas and beliefs fall neatly into place once perfectly memorized. Oh, and by the way, fear and disbelief and doubt, the very things Jesus patiently and lovingly addresses in his friends, by the way, according to organized faith, those are things we should be ashamed of, but not so in the company of Jesus. The body belongs right here, guys. It's only half the gospel if we leave the body out. 
These Eastertide post-resurrection stories have to land. They have to reshape our imagination of this world, of how we move about inside it, or there will be no Pentecost to empower us to be witnesses. Witnesses to what? To better religious ideas? Meh. Who needs that? If we rush right past this, we might never quite know what to make of our bodies as the very location, hear me, church, of the divine transformation that Jesus demonstrated. He goes nowhere that we can't. Remember that. The sweet by and by is actually not our deepest, most revolutionary truth. That's all the faith of my youth seemed to offer, but a ticket out of here isn't our best news, y'all. It's accepting that the here and now can be sweet if we make it so because it is capable of carrying the hope of a new creation inside it, literally within it, now, already, here. That's the whole gospel. Justice, freedom, the release of captive bodies here, now. That's our gospel. Don't say, oh, that's some stuff reserved for the life after this. No, friends, that's available right now, but we'll have to create it if we're going to live in it. In fact, I'll go out on a limb here and just say it this way. I'm beginning to believe that it's the nearness of our answer, of our promised land. It's the nearness of our total liberation, not the distance from here, wherever here is, that most surprises us about Jesus. I understand most of us were raised on the gospel that split everything in two, good and evil, up and down, heaven and earth, now and later. Most of us were taught not to expect the good stuff yet. That was for some other time, but that's not what Jesus taught. His version 2.08 fish, y'all, he demonstrated the full capacity on both sides of this. You need to know, in case you think I've lost my mind, that I'm not alone here making outlandish claims about the nowness of new life, Stephen Cooper writes this, to insist on the reality of the resurrected body is to demand that we accept our present reality as the place where transformations of ultimate significance take place. Right here, notice, these post-resurrection stories aren't primarily theological claims about victory over death or the defeat of sin. Hear me, these are statements about shame and hiding and bodies. They're profound and disturbing claims about the whereness, even the whenness of breakthrough, of transformation. The resurrection stories about Jesus in his glorified bodies are designed to answer the ultimate question, do we have what it takes to thrive now? Does eternal life begin today? Are we equipped to flourish? And the answer is, we are. Which is why it's so unacceptable to see our brothers and our sisters still living in the constraints that our systems of white power and privilege have relegated them to. Oh yeah, we're gonna go there this week. You know how we do around here. We spend about half our week watching the headlines as well as the text to get ready for this place. We desperately need some of Cooper's transformations of ultimate significance right about now. This final thought. If you ever felt like all is lost, like the systems of this world are too broken to be repaired, just find the table where Jesus is and pay attention to what's happening to the bodies assembled there. You know where, where all are welcome, where all are being served, every single one. That table is our vision of the future. It's what pulls us forward until all of this has been rebooted in the version 2.0. When in doubt, here's the whole thing, just watch the bodies. Because that's where the gospel will play out. 
It's where redemption happens. If it's wrong for the bodies involved, it isn't good news. Tell me, friends, is there a better way to make sense of these post-resurrection narratives? Jesus brought his body, the blueprint, the schematic, the foretaste, the advance of the new creation back here for his friends to see and touch, to enjoy a hearty meal with. Oh, can you hear the good news today? Don't crush the body. These are sacred, eternal, built for both sides. Which is why the words, I can't breathe, have become the anthem of our generation. You can't say it any clearer than that, friends. If Michael Ramos and Sean Reed and George Floyd and Tony the Tiger McDade and David McAtee and Carlos Carson and Richard Brooks and Dejan Kizzy and Jonathan Dwayne Price and Marcellus Stinnett and Sincere Pierce and A.J. Crooms and Casey Goodson Jr. and Andre Hill and Angelo Quinto and Vinnie Belmonte and Patrick Lynn Warren and Marvin Scott and Dante Wright and Adam Toledo can't breathe, then our work isn't done. Y'all, that's just a quick list of the bodies that have been crushed by law enforcement in the last 12 months. Shall we go any further? We stand against police brutality because of what Jesus taught us about ourselves. We stand against all forms of injustice and violence because we know our full gospel and we know where our bodies fit into it and not just us. We know this applies to all God's children, everyone, no exceptions. If a single one of us can't breathe, then none of us can breathe. That's not how you treat something sacred, y'all. You don't shoot it when its hands are in the air. You don't beat it down in the streets. You don't starve it, scare it, or abuse it. You don't do that to a body. You cannot kneel on the neck of a man of any color without kneeling on the neck of God. So we lament together because we have so far yet to go. And we must not tire until we all get there, until we all get there. Angie, come and lead us in song today, please.